When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talked to Kyle Daly of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 184. Back to the Bird Shop Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Got a great show for you today with my buddy Kyle Daly, fellow grouse and woodcock hunter, and also fish and wildlife biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're going to talk to Kyle in just a moment. But first, of course, thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Dropped another bundle of canned coolers and stickers off at the post office today. Welcome packs for new Patreon patrons of the show. Thank you to all new and existing Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. And although it is the first episode in August, I have drawn a winner of our July Patreon giveaway. I'm still confirming with said winner which prize they intend to select. Of the three we have available, that is a Final Rise vest, a pair of Sawbuck brush pants from First Light, or a Pathfinder 2 GPS tracking and training collar. One of those three going to our July winner, The other two will be up for grabs in our August giveaway. All Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast are eligible for those monthly giveaways. They get bonus content when that's available over at patreon.com forward slash birdshot and access to additional discounts like the ones we've got for Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. As always, thanks for considering that. All right, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, follow, share the podcast, leave a rating in the podcast app, Spotify, Apple, leave a comment or a review if you can. I appreciate that feedback. 
and it does indeed help the Birdshot podcast via the charts and rankings and such. So appreciate everybody out there that does choose to support the show in that way. It is officially August, everybody. The countdown is on, if it wasn't already. Starting to feel it a bit in the air, in the evenings, in the mornings. There are some opportunities popping back up to get the dogs out on wild birds. I have yet to do any of that specifically, but that may be in my near future. I'll be out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp next week doing gun fittings with Upland Gun Company. Del Whitman's coming back over. We've got a whole slate of fittings scheduled with maybe a few openings left, depending on when you're listening to this. If you got some availability next week and are interested in dropping by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, get in touch with Upland Gun Company or me, ASAP, and we might be able to squeeze you in. All right, speaking of Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, that is the place where I most often run into our guest today, Kyle Daly of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Kyle finds himself there chipping in with the Woodcock Banding Program, does a little guiding there in the fall, does some dog training along with the rest of us. And earlier this spring when I was there for the Woodcock Banding Seminar, Kyle was too, and he gave a little presentation on Pittman-Robertson, and the funding mechanism that exists as an excise tax on the sale of firearms and ammunition, which of course is a hugely important piece of the wildlife conservation tools and systems that exist in this country. And at the time, I thought it would make for a great podcast conversation along with everything else Kyle Daly has to offer in regards to bird hunting and woodcock banding and that sort of thing. And since that time, there was a bit of a splashy news story a few weeks ago or so about a proposal to eliminate or repeal that Pittman-Robertson Act. So I thought now more than ever would be a great time to get Kyle on the show to talk a little bit about the act, how it works, how it functions, and its importance to states and wildlife conservation. In addition to that, Kyle and I spent some time talking about his educational pursuits, including a master's degree that involves some woodcock research his bird dogs, and a host of other things. So I'm going to let Kyle tell you the rest. And I nearly forgot, apologies in advance, this conversation ends somewhat abruptly. We had some minor technical difficulties on the call, ended up losing some bits and pieces of the conversation. So captured 98, 99% of it, right towards the very end, it gets a little fragmented, and then it will simply just end. So you didn't miss much. We heard most of what our guests had to say today. I hope you enjoy it. And with that said, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and onto Birdshot Podcast of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Kyle Daly. And we are rolling on the Birdshot Podcast. Kyle Daly, thanks for joining me today, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. August 1st today. Are you starting to get excited? Uh, very much so. You know, we've had kind of a cool snap in the weather this past week, week and a half too. So mm. things feel like they're they're getting close. Yeah, and you are you are in Minnesota. Put us on the map a little bit. Tell us tell us where you are and what you do, and then we'll then we'll dive in from there. Sure. Yeah. So I I currently live in uh, Onamia, which is just on the south side of Malax Lake. Just north of Malax Wildlife Area, so there's a lot of bird hunting, good opportunities around here. Um, but I've lived in Minnesota now for about 12 years, and most of that time was split between the Detroit Lakes area and the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I moved to Minnesota, like I said, 12 years ago, absolutely fell in love with it, never wanted to leave, and that's kind of why I stuck here. So 
Um, You're not a Minnesota native. Where are you from, Kyle? I'm not. I'm from Southwest Ohio, so uh, just oh. north of Cincinnati. Uh, so when I moved here, everyone thought I was had a Southern accent, and I didn't really understand why. And now I've picked up so much <laughs> Minnesota lingo that when I go home, I'm kind of shunned there too. <laughs> you're you're discarded by both now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Which which can be a good thing. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you don't need to belong to to any certain clan. The uh you and my previous guest both from Ohio, Glenn Blackwood, he was from Ohio too. I'm happy to have you up here, Kyle. I'll say that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good to be here. So, what's the fishing report? Do you get out on Malax often? Uh a few times uh this year so far. Um, you know, it's hit or miss. Uh, smallmouth seem to be doing great. I haven't had as much luck with smallmouth lately. Um, trying to figure out the depths and where they've been later this summer. Walleye opened back up in mid-July, so I think you know people are, are catching some walleye, but uh, you still can't keep any right now. So, mm. um, but it's a great lake. It's a, it's a phenomenal lake to be around. Obviously, a lot of a lot of pressure, but um, a great fishery all around where you're looking for big walleye or, or big smallmouth or muskies or, or whatever else. So, and then spending a lot of time on those smaller lakes around too, just pan fishing and, and getting out and doing some of that. Yeah. What's, we, we, we definitely won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'm, I'm kind of checked out on the Malax fishery and what's the status of the walleye? I mean, you just mentioned you can't keep any, and I, I know I heard about that as it kind of went in, but where are they at with it? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not, I'm not like necessarily the, the best person to ask about that because I, I, I know gotcha. too much to be like date, I'm, I, <laughs> but I will misquote it and I'll tangle it around gotcha. probably. And, and all the fisheries biologists that are my friends will just like, you know, write me off forever. But I know, <laughs> you know, the DNR obviously is working very hard, uh, in conjunction with the tribe to kind of rework that fishery and, and figure out what it looks like moving forward and you know all the the social social and political aspects of that lake are, are always interesting too yeah. which which makes it a cool lake to live around you know just to see see and get the vibe of of everyone and what they think about it so depends on who you ask sure <laughs> right right yeah I like a lot of things well that's that's kind of like that's like me every week on this podcast Kyle you know I I know enough resource professionals and foresters and bird <laughs> biologists that sometimes I think I know what I'm talking about but inevitably I, I screw up when I'm having doing these interviews on the show but that's just life <laughs> yeah yeah well so, so you know like you mentioned I'm a I'm a wildlife biologist and and in an agency where we kind of tangled around having you know should the biologist talk to the public or not and and uh one of the the hardest things I have, you know, as a scientist and as a biologist is that there's no certainty, you know, it's always, there's always caveats. There's always a thousand different things that could be mm. going on. Just it's probably just like the answer I gave you about Malax that, you know, um, the public wants certainty and they want to know how to move forward. And, and a lot of times the biologists can't give them that answer because we're too tangled up in the details. Yeah. I think that, that maybe that's why I enjoy talking to you guys so much. Cause I, for whatever reason, I, and it, and maybe sometimes it's a fault, but I tend to get caught up in, I have a hard time with absolutes. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I just, there's too much nuance and there are too many variables and a lot of the stuff that we talk about. So I'm, 
I kind of latch on to that, to the nuance. And I want to talk about like the variations and what could cause things. And, you know, at some point it's nice to have a clear picture of something. So like you said, you could make a decision and move forward, but man, that just seems so hard to do in a lot of these things. Yeah. And you know, and there's always a variety of different outcomes that people want too. So you're trying to sometimes manage for a variety of different uh, objectives and, and that can be very hard to do. Right. So how did you, let's, we'll, we'll get the short story, but let's rewind a little bit. And I'd like to find out how you became such an avid outdoorsman and obviously a, a fish and wildlife biologist that start back in Ohio. You have exposure to the outdoors early on. Yeah, a lot of exposure. Um, we grew up fishing quite a lot with at local lakes, and then obviously Lake Erie, which is you know the best walleye fishery in the world. And I'm biased towards that because I'm from Ohio, and <laughs> you know there's a lot of fish there, and it's it's definitely a great fishery. So um, did a lot of fishing up there uh, for both perch and walleye, and then just a variety of other things growing up that we got exposure towards the outdoors and conservation. Um, whether it's, you know, was just hiking or playing in the neighborhood creek or in throwing mud and rocks at each other, you know, what, what my brother and I would used to do. And uh, anywhere from going to zoos and, and doing field trips to see different state areas. Um, so it, it, was, it was cool. And I didn't grow up hunting, so I didn't pick that up until mm. after college and grad school. I had a really good buddy in Michigan uh, take me out duck hunting at first, and then that kind of went into turkey hunting and then deer hunting and then um, a variety of other things. So uh, that's kind of how I got hooked up in the hunting world. And then I started my master's degree researching woodcock. And yeah. that really got me like doing a deep dive because we were we were tracking uh, chicks and hens and using pointing dogs to find them. So I got to be like every day surrounded by, you know, different styles of pointing dogs, uh, looking for this bird. And then I got to radio mark them and follow them around. So that was, that was a great, great pleasure that I, that I got to experience in my life and, and kind of led me down this path of upland hunting and, and bird dogs. Yeah. Where did you, where did you go to college for undergrad and then your master's? Yeah. So I went to a liberal arts school in Columbus, Ohio called Capital University uh, they're best known for the medical field and getting people into med- medical schools um, or pre-professional schools. And I was like the one or the, one of the very few ecology wildlife geeks there. And I kind of got attached to one of the wildlife profession- professors and he kind of showed me what the world of wildlife management and wildlife research could look like. Um, so from there, I went to the University of Michigan for about a year and a half and started graduate school there in conservation biology. And then this project with Woodcock opened up at the University of Minnesota. So I took my credits okay. from Michigan, transferred okay. over and finished up at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. When you did that, because I was going to ask you, did that Woodcock project choose you or did you choose it? Sounds like you chose it. What was your, what was your knowledge of Woodcock and like interest level at that point? What, what led to that? Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of both. It, I just happened substantially like walked into it. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of what wildlife biologists do when they're trying to get into grad school or, or get a permanent job is a lot of summer or seasonal tech work. So I was up in Minnesota for a summer 
uh, Tamarack Refuge over by Detroit Lakes. And they had started kind of this okay. pilot project looking at brood survival. So um, from the time the chicks hatch to when they're fledging. So I got tied into that pilot project and that kind of incorporate itself more and more kind of solidified itself on on what kind of questions we wanted to ask from that pilot project and then got obviously into that into that master's uh, study so I, I think we I, I picked it but it picked me it was kind of just serendipitous and we figured <laughs> it out together but I knew very little about Woodcock until until that point I was pretty novice still you know still learning only a couple, maybe two, three years of hunting. Still very novice about woodcock, and 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 really never had explored the you know upper Great Lakes that much. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just kind of was like a here's a woodcock, go follow it around and learn everything you can. <laughs> That's cool. Tell me a little bit about the Sherburn Wildlife Refuge. I've I know the name only because I've heard you and, and others in the Woodcock Banding Program mention it, but mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious about that property. I've never been there. Yeah, um, so Sherburn's one of the four or five, maybe six different national wildlife refuges in Minnesota. Again, those are there's those are owned by the federal government and managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So a little bit different than your traditional wildlife management area that's run by the state. Um, or Sure. A national park that is, you know, very similar as far as ownership goes, but different management objectives. Sherburn itself is not too far from the Twin Cities. Uh, I'd say it's about an hour, hour and 15 minute drive north. And, you know, I don't know how much deep down into the, the biology and geology you want to go, but uh, it's, a, it's in the Anoka Sand Plain, so it's very dry soil. And traditionally what oh. was there were uh, oak savannas and then kind of around some of the wetter areas you had the you know the shrubby alders and into aspen so it's a very big refuge i think it's about forty thousand acres um a lot of great hunting especially when the the woodcock are migrating through in the fall and then it's also one of the biggest migratory stopovers for sandhill cranes so if you want to go there in October and hear 10,000 to 15,000 sandhills calling and stuff. It's pretty cool. I, I don't know that I've, I, I definitely have heard, you know, small flocks of them overhead, but I don't know if I've ever heard a, a number of them like that. I think that would be kind of epic. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's slightly frightening at times too. It's just like this noise yeah. sounds very different than what I've heard. And it's so loud and so many birds. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. A swarm of dinosaurs overhead. Yeah, exactly. That's actually, that's neat that you mentioned the the sand plains. That's, the soil type has kind of become a, a, like a little pet interest of mine, and I've talked about it on the on the show. Um, so yeah. it's kind of interesting to hear you comment on that. When I, or when you say, you say refuge, I immediately think no hunting, but it sounds like you can hunt there. It's just restrictions, I would imagine. Yeah, it's, it's so it's obviously one of those terms that's used differently by different agencies. Yeah. Um, so like on your state wildlife areas owned by Minnesota DNR, uh, you know, they have refuges that you can't hunt in, but the way the fish and wildlife service, U S fish and wildlife service uses it, that's just the name of the area. And, uh, by law, a certain amount of that area needs to be open to hunting. So a lot of these, a lot of these areas were established, 
you know, throughout the 1900s as important migratory bird stopovers, whether it's like sandhills that we mentioned, or a lot of it's related to waterfowl um, as well. Uh, and they would leave around 30% of those refuges open to hunting, and then the other portion closed. Okay. All right. So one thing here, given that it was oak savanna, what does it look like now? Is it primarily forested cover now? And if yes, what does that forest look like? Uh, yeah, so Sherburn, uh, they've done, I think, a substantial amount of work over the last 10 years or so to to restore some of that oak savanna. Oak savanna is one of the, just like the rest of the prairie, oak savanna is a, is a, a prairie system with occasional you know usually bur oak or some type of other oak species that's kind of the only tree in the area um and they're pretty infrequent but you know they're kind of big shade trees i would i would say imagine that and they're very fire dependent so they need prescribed fire and if they don't have that then all these other hardwood species start creeping in on them um so sherburn's done a lot of management uh, over the last, well, for a long time, but over the last 10 years, they've re- really stepped on the gas and uh, opened those areas up a lot. With that being said, there is still a substantial portion of the refuge that's in, you know, young aspen. Some that's still in some pine, uh, pine mix like red pine. areas. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think they're trying to move away from that. Yeah, and just keep a lot of the refuge, I think, in that young forest mosaic that you know along with their grassland savanna systems they can kind of feather into these these young forests yeah are there are there grouse in there too yeah there are um it's actually cool sherburn so i've hunted it it's actually one of the first places i hunted woodcock at and it's one of those areas where you can find rough grouse, woodcock, and pheasants running around, wild pheasants still oh, running around. Interesting. So that's yeah. kind of like the, you know, and you could probably get a snipe and maybe some ducks, so you could probably fill a very diverse game bag in a day uh, without moving mm-hmm. too far. Yeah, that is, pre- that is pretty unique. Well, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more on your research before we leave that and kind of fast forward to kind of what where that has led you today. But mm-hmm. just like, high level stuff. I'm sure you wrote papers and stuff on it, but what kind of conversation is there around your research? What did you learn? So it was really built around, we're going to talk about a different refuge now, Tamarack. That's where I did all the work at. That's where you did uh, the project. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, and that we we can talk, that's one of the most beautiful places in Minnesota, I think. Lakes, rivers, mature forests, young forests, you know, wetland systems. It's very, very cool. But it was established as kind of a demonstration area for young forest management. So there had been, you know, RGS had been doing some some projects there in the past in conjunction with Fish and Wildlife Service. And then a great portion of the refuge, right in the middle of the refuge, was managed for young forest uh, habitat. So obviously benefiting grouse, woodcock, you know, deer, golden warblers are, are a very important species there. So because it had been managed that way, it was meant to kind of showcase to the public what young forest management looks like. You know, a lot of people come by forest lands and they like the big trees. Um, But really those young forests are much more productive, uh, much more 
diverse as far as species go and bring in more that the game species aspect that people might be looking for when they're buying forest land up north to hunt or or spend time with their family. So we wanted to really look at how woodcock are responding to that management. We know woodcock use young forest. We know they breed there. We know they eat there, you know, raise their young. Um, but they do their display flights and openings in that young forest. So what we did, uh, we would radio mark adult hens and as soon as they came back in the spring. So we were out there with snow still on the ground in March trying to catch uh, as many woodcock as possible, but particularly interested with in mist nets in and stuff. Yep, with mist nets at that time, and then get as many radio transmitters. Um, so basically, the the oldest, some of the oldest technology now that's still used in wildlife sure. uh, studies yeah. are just radio frequency based, and then tracking them around, finding their nests, and then as they hatch, we monitor the nests, look how they survive, and then as they hatch you know, watch the juvenile survival, um, going into the summer. And then from that data, we kind of understood how the population was, you know, doing that, that year, that spring anyway. And we wanted to compare that data to different methods of capture to see if we could do the same type of study cheaper and easier. Um, so instead of doing all this radio markings, spending all this time in the field, hiring technicians and getting volunteers with pointing dogs out to look for broods, we would then go out in July and August to try to capture woodcock at night with mist nets and night lights and big hoop nets, landing nets, if you will, for like you do for fishing and and look mm. at age and sex ratios. So how many juveniles do we catch for every adult? female and compare that to our you know actually trans our transmitter data to see are they comparable or not so that's i think that's pretty technical but basically we wanted to see if there's a cheaper way to get the same information and what we found out is no there's not (laughs) so um you know all data comes with bias and, and assumptions but uh yeah, our recommendation was if you really want to understand populations and what they're doing, woodcock populations and what they're doing in the in the breeding season, spend the time and money to, to put transmitters on them and, and follow them around. Yeah, and that has now led into more modern research where we're using GPS trackers and there's, there's obviously stuff going out east with the eastern woodcock migration study mm-hmm. and we've got that going on here through... I think it's kind of multifaceted the different organizations that are involved with that, but yep. I would say we're seem to seem to be learning quite a lot about woodcock movement with those GPS trackers. Yeah, that's that's gold. Uh, GPS uh, is a phenomenal technology that we, we're obviously using more and more on wildlife, but it's also advancing to the point where we can use it on smaller and smaller critters too. So. Mm-hmm. That just opens up a whole new, um, whole new world as far as how to research these creatures and see, specifically with migration studies. That was our gap in knowledge. We kind of understood what they were doing in their wintering ground down, you know, on the on the Gulf Coast and into Georgia and the Carolinas, and we we understood what basically what they were doing in the breeding season up in the you know in Canada and the Upper Midwest and and Northeast. But we didn't understand where they're going in between 
and how fast they'd get there, where they'd stop to refuel. So those GPS, that GPS technology really opened that up and uh, can help us kind of focus in on really important areas for woodcock during that migration. Yeah. And the bird banding, obviously, very commonly referred to in with waterfowl, but also with woodcock, that is one of those things that, like you're saying, that kind of, you could confirm two endpoints if you return to band. And we kind of had that general understanding of birds migrating from the north to the south. And then of course, back to the north to the breeding grounds, but all of that in between stuff. And they're, they're really do. I mean, it's been pointed out in numerous articles and stuff. There's there's some really interesting movement patterns. It's, it's not just a, always just a north-south movement or a south-to-north movement from these birds. Right, and then and then we didn't. We always thought that you know the the northeast birds stayed on the east coast, and the mm. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan birds went down to Louisiana. But there's a lot more crossover there too. So yeah, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of things you can find out. You know, just by slapping that GPS on them and downloading the data. So. Yeah. So was it your involvement in this project and then you know subsequent proximity to pointing dogs and their handlers that kind of led you down the path of bird hunting and bird dogs of your own (laughs) yeah yeah for sure um (laughs) i'm kind of giggling because you know all those they're all very fond experiences but it kind of gave me a, a a very novice person like myself and i would still consider myself a fair fairly a novice person because i haven't been rigorously hunting grouse and woodcock you know unless the last five or six years as much yeah but that involvement you know those volunteers with their pointing dogs coming out to help on the project and get radios out on birds made that all happen right we couldn't do this without the the dog handler we especially couldn't do it without the dog and there's really no better tool for that than the dog you know despite all the new technologies technologies we might have as humans. It's like these dogs were bred to do this. It's, you know, what they love and, and what they're good at. And um, I was just very grateful for that, for that experience because I got to really see that world, get a glimpse of that world. It's, you know, at that time it was only in the spring, primarily during my study. But, you know, then yep. those folks would, you know, take me out hunting in the fall and kind of help me see you know, the full circle of their mindset of conservation, you know, like we care about woodcock. Yes, we hunt them, but, you know, and we appreciate the hunt, but we really want to take time and dedicate a lot of time and effort into conserving them and finding out what we need to find out to, to help with that. So it, it was a very cool experience. And like I said, I got to see dogs work every day and compare, contrast, handling techniques people dogs you know whatever um so it was it was it was cool from that aspect too yeah i forgot to mention at the start our mutual friend if we would call him that gary (laughs) abel uh he he asked me to send his regards but it was uh it was it was said in a way that i won't repeat it on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i love jerry he's he's a great guy he's been I actually met his dad first, which was kind of a funny story. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. Cause, yeah, yeah, you mentioned when you gave your little talk at Pine Ridge, I'm pretty sure you let off with some kind of a jab at Jerry. So I wanted to make sure that got repeated here. <laughs> yeah, we, we jab at each other. There's a lot of love there. So, um, But he's a big influence on me as a, a, a dog trainer, especially. 
I have one of his LHU lineage pointers from Pine Ridge, and I, she's a fantastic dog, mm-hmm. and he's really helped me understand the dog world so much more than I would have otherwise. And that's that's what I love about hanging out up at Pine Ridge. It's talking to all the people that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years and listening to their stories and, and you know their techniques and their styles and everything else. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that. And anybody that's listened to the show for a while will know that Pine Ridge has kind of been part of my total immersion in in this and yeah i've i've long commented about the people that hang out there and and the the sheer volume of experience that has that has been accumulated by the yeah. guides and the research professionals and everybody yeah and then the, the more you hang out the more you hang out there the more you know you learn who to listen to and who not so much to listen to as well so that's always a, <laughs> exactly <fun> yeah experience. <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt so what was there a was there a, a magic moment where you thought, all right, I'm getting a bird dog? Was there was there anything in particular, or or tell me about that your first dog and what that was like? Yeah, um, I grew up with with Labradors. Okay, and so we we always had like bird dogs, but again, I, like I said, I didn't grow up hunting. My dad did, and my brother did some to the extent possible. I'd say in Ohio on on birds, you know, and I won't say all wild birds, but there are some birds there. So it was really near the end of that whole research project, seeing so many dogs work and kind of figuring out what I wanted. But I was still living in the Twin Cities. Mm. So in, in a small shared house with some roommates, you know, colleagues at the university. So it was like kind of a one dog option kind of, kind of at the time. Um, and I had seen a lot of Griff's work and I liked them. I liked their personality. I like their look, I like their style, and I knew they're you know dogs that could live in that urban, semi-urban environment pretty well with some regular exercise and 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 make it work. And then I could also take them out and upland hunt and waterfowl hunt. Um, yeah, I used to do a lot more waterfowl hunting at that time um, than I do now. So, versatile dog train and got a griff. And he's eight now, and he's a he's he's a great dog, love him to death. Uh, he is like the biggest dog we have, but the lowest on the on on the on the ranking chart, the hierarchy. Uh, you know, he's just a very sensitive dog, and uh, so I and I got him, and I I said to myself at the time, like, okay, you're gonna be learning on this dog, so you're gonna mess stuff up. Yeah, and that kind of carried forward, and like I said, I did mess up, and. You know, he's not the perfect dog, but he's a good dog and and um great on great on woodcock. Grouse he hunts differently than a lot of other, you know, setters or pointers, but you just gotta learn his learn his subtle reads and you can and uh kill a lot of meat over him for yeah. sure. What are some of those nuances? Does it have to do with maybe his pace and and maybe tracking a little bit? Yeah, definitely his range for one, you know, he's only going 40, 50 yards out, which, which puts you kind of in the cover with him, you know, mm-hmm. cause if you're not in the cover, he's like, well, are we just walking to the next spot? So really getting into the cover with him, letting him slowly, methodically, you know, sent around at that 40, 50 yard, uh, range and kind of a, a 
medium paced dog so definitely a foot hunting breed and then stopping and tracking and and you know doing that sly slow track yeah and learning that that okay you're not going to get to the dog and that bird's going to flush where you're at you're going to get to the dog and then you're going to move with the dog up to the bird yeah so learning that and then he's just not a stylish pointer you know he's not something that you can easily read in the woods if if you don't know know him so i usually tell people out if i'm taking the people out or guiding it's like okay if his tail's up but his head's down that's that's when he knows he's on point but if the head's up and the tail's up yeah he smells something you know it's got to be both of those things head head down and tail up and, and then you know that he's serious yeah Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. There's, there's so much... I think to that, as far as like learning how to read the dog and, and it isn't, I know when I had my first dog, like, I think I just sheer lack of experience. You're thinking kind of, okay, the dog's going to go on point. I'm going to walk in and flush a bird and it's going to be just like that. But it's like, that's so often not the case. You know, there's, there's relocates or, you know, they're, we're talking grouse or, or wild birds. They don't, they don't exactly behave like that, like a preserved bird or something. So, but as a beginner, I mean, you just you really don't know until you know at that point. So I could, that would be interesting to learn like that. Yeah. Well, another, another thing, you know, I hear I was had a, a master's degree in wildlife and it spent hundreds and maybe thousands of hours in the woods following Woodcock around and being like, that cover doesn't look good, but he's taking me in there and being like, all right, I guess we'll <laughs> go in there. And there, sure enough, there'd be a bird in there. And yeah, like, well, I, maybe I don't know what I thought I knew. You know, maybe all those thousands of hours in the Woodcock woods in the spring, you know, didn't translate as clearly as I thought into the fall. So (laughs) trust your dog was another big experience for me. And, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Learning to trust the dog is, is a big one. That is for, that's for sure. It gets said often enough, but that's because it's damn true. Yep. So today you are involved in the Minnesota Woodcock banding program. What's your, what's your, are you the leader of that? I wouldn't say I'm, I'm one of the, one of the people that make it happen. I think there, there's a kind of a cast of a handful of us that, yeah. that have that program up and, and running to the scale it is now. Um, what I do is, is kind of coordinate the bands. So I hold the permit for all the, the actual, you know, aluminum bands that go on the birds. Um, 
from the federal bird banding lab and then just you know send those out to all the banders collect all the data submit that back to the bird banding lab and just kind of do that general high level kind of coordination and getting people equipment and and supplies they need to to do that the physical banding um, and then obviously we run a a training course each spring and my role in that is kind of just do like intro stuff and then thankfully yeah. we have people like debbie peterson and, and bailey peterson and Lindsay chartel and probably people that all the people that you know that are involved too yeah. um, that really help out with that training um, and then we have the the old guard the terry petros and earl johnson's of, and donna dustin's that kind of come in and, and share their experiences and help us mentor people yeah um, so yeah, it takes a lot of people to kind of get that together. I just kind of, I guess my title is banding coordinator, but I'm just, I, I like it. I can like kind of run behind the scenes and do the, do the logistical stuff. Um, not that I don't, I don't mind training people. I just think there's people that are better at that than I would be. So I, they should yeah. be doing that stuff and, and let me do what I can do to help out. But that program is very special to me. Obviously, it, it's, it's the reason I could do the, the work I did on my research and having that resource base around the state of Minnesota to to help with research projects for Woodcock moving forward, I think is going to be an important aspect of what we do. Yeah. Anything to report on this year's... Are there trends or or things that you're monitoring from year to year with the with the banding program like if you brewed you know 100 broods this year versus the year prior um that's a good sign or what what could you tell me in that regard yeah some of that's anecdotal um and it so we're, we're really tracking the amount of bands that are put on birds where they're put out you know down to like a gps location for each brood or each bird that's banded and then you know, bander effort is another big thing to track. So if you ban a hundred birds this year and you put in 200 hours, you know, but you only banded 10 birds the next, but put in, you know, 20 hours, that's basically the same rate of capture. So that doesn't mean there's less or more birds in the landscape. It's, it's highly variable. The season seasonal changes really drive how we do, how well we do as, as banders. So like this past year, we had a winter that kind of never ended. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it ended and it got to be like 80 degrees and wet and everything <laughs> greened up really fast. So they're very narrow window to capture uh, woodcock broods efficiently. So everyone I've talked to so far, uh, and we're just getting a lot of the data back now. Everybody I've talked to so far has been like, it was a tough year. And I think that's not related to having a bad reproductive year for woodcock i think that's related to they weren't there and then they were all there and then it was too green to find them you know because they're just you know you know how small they are when they're when they're young and if the grass grows taller than they are it can be it can be really uh tough so and we always err on the side of safety bird safety is our number one thing so we don't want to do anything out there that's going to um impact the bird more than what we intend to um so if it if you don't feel like you can go out and find birds safely then hey like call it a season and and we'll get them next year yeah this was that that would very well describes the 
lack of spring we had, you know, not unusual for, for this part of the world, but it was definitely like winter and then it was summer <laughs> and there was, there was not much, not much spring this year. Yeah. Another big variable is, you know, how experienced the banders are and the dogs experience. So if they're bringing a new dog in trying to learn that game in the spring, which can be very different than in the fall, you can have a bander that bands 50 birds one year and then they, you know, have a new dog working in, they only band, you know, a handful the next year. So there's just a lot of variables. It's hard to equivocate any of that to a population level thing. And, and, um, we just like to get together and, and, and kind of brag about, you know, our experiences and who banded the most. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I won't say anything about, this is one of those biologist answers. I'm not going to say anything about the population and, and what it looks like. <laughs> I was trying to squeeze a, a, a woodcock <laughs> forecast out of you there, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always a good woodcock year. Yeah, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, well, speaking of that, the drumming counts came out last week, and, yeah, that always that always makes me think of some of the buzz that goes around with the survey. I think I, I played my part in, in uh, tempering expectations when I announced that on the – well, I didn't make an announcement, but I was talking about it. It's not a it's not a hunting forecast, and that's that's important. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can go on between that time and the fall, you know. And especially grouse might be a little bit more. Uh, like I said, it's not like you said, it's not a hunting forecast, but grouse don't migrate, so right, you might be able to get an idea of more of a local scale, but with migratory woodcock coming in from Canada and Northern Minnesota and wherever it could be really good productive year in one place and not so good in another. And then they all mix together and you'll never know the difference. So, yeah, I know for me personally, I had a, a down year. I couldn't tell you the numbers, but, uh, I didn't flush nor shoot at nearly as many woodcock last year as I had in years past. And I don't really chalk that up to anything other than I just wasn't into them. I didn't hit big flights and it just, it is what it is. Kind of the predictable unpredictability of woodcock hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're always anticipating one of those crazy years where you're every cover you walk in seems to be, you know, full of them. Um, my, my, my season last year sounded similar to yours where it was, you know, they were there, but you weren't like covered up in them. Yeah. Um, and everyone I've talked to about that kind of says it might, the, the longer fall, there's no weather pushing them from Canada. So they're just kind of trickling through. There wasn't yeah. that big wave that was getting pushed by a storm. Yeah. Those are uh, lots of fall hunting conversations around woodcock migration. But yeah, if I'm being totally honest, I would say that I kind of had a, I got into just enough of them last year. That was that was all I needed to get into. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're more of a grouse specialist anyway, aren't you? Well, I like to think of myself as that. I don't know if I could really wear that that qualification around, but I do like <laughs> I do like the feeling in the back of my mind that if I'm walking in on point, the odds of it being a grouse are pretty good. So I do like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say because I don't want to assume we're not gonna dive much deeper into woodcock banding but because we brought it up i think it would be fair to point out that it is a program there's a certification you mentioned the training at pine ridge the dogs have to qualify and a lot of the training program is about you know the etiquette i I recall from when i was there this spring at pine ridge you guys were talking about how some banders were out 
and there was like a thunderstorm potentially coming in and you call off the banding that day because you don't want to you don't want to put the chicks at risk so just if you could talk through what it takes to get certified and then some of those requirements yes yeah, so, uh, we've really revamped the program over the last you know five six years to make it more rigorous not necessarily from a difficulty standpoint but just from a refocusing reframing why we're out doing what we're doing um, putting that conservation first, that bird safety first mindset, and inst- instilling that in into the banders, into the new banders. So, you know, one of the first steps is to attend one of those trainings. Um, we're hoping that as we grow the program more and more, that more of those can be offered in, in different parts of the state. Mm. Um, but right mm. now, they're pretty much only done it at Pine Ridge in, in the spring. Um, and Jerry's uh, grateful, you know, to, to host us there. And we're happy to, to do it there because he has the space and there's a lot of birds around, which is important. And that, that one and a half day kind of classroom setting is mostly geared towards the people, right? The banders themselves, you know, what to go out there and, and, and expect. And, you know, some of those guidelines of don't go out there if it's going to rain, don't go out there if it's too cold, you know, don't ban any broods, break up any broods, you know, too close to sunset. Some of those those things, putting those yeah. uh, sideboards on uh, on when and, and how to do it. And then another big portion of that is then going out and uh, testing the dogs, right? So this is a team, team exercise. It's going to be you and your dog out there. Um, the dog needs to be steady on a on a pigeon test at first so we'll run some pigeons through launchers and then the last pigeon will be tethered to a string and weighted by a a water bottle or some other weighted thing so it emulates the hen woodcock flushing which is like the most you know um what word am i trying to think of enticing thing that a dog can experience in the wood here's this bird I smelled and now it flew 10 feet and is acting injured. I want to go grab it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to be steady on that. Uh, and, and kind of checked off by a number of us that are kind of the, the senior experienced folks. If they go through that, so the person's been through the, their training, the dog's been through that first step in its training, then they can go out with a mentor and their dog can, can run in the woods and try to find wild birds and then be constantly assessed and, it's not just new people that are assessed. It's all of us. We're, we're assessing our dogs. We're assessing ourselves constantly, um, to make sure that, you know, we're not giving ourselves a little break here. If my dog kind of creeps in on this bird and this, or chases that hen that, that we're being honest with ourselves and, and making sure that we're out there again, having the least impact we can to ban these birds. Yeah. So, and then once they've mentored, there's a whole series of kind of, check check boxes that they'll go through as and their mentor will will check off on those um and then they can be added to the banding permit get bands on their own the next next spring um once ever they get through that that checklist so we've we've put a pretty rigorous system together uh training together and that's already been picked up in other states that have woodcock mm. banding programs and you know, look what minnesota's doing maybe we should think about kind of updating our, our protocols. So again, bird safety is number one. And, you know, we're out there to, 
yes, have fun and enjoy ourselves and be successful, but but always put the bird first. Do you know what other states have legitimate banding programs? I know Michigan has a big one, but other than Minnesota, Michigan, I, I don't think I could name any other ones. No, um, Michigan is is the other one, right? Like the, it's the big one. It's the one with the wait list to get on. It's, yeah. you know, I forget how many banders they have every year. And, you know, if you're not, if you're not productive enough, then you get replaced on the permit. Don't make it's the kind cut. of a, it's kind of a, <laughs> yeah, it's a, like a behemoth of a system. Um, <laughs> but other, other States will use it if they're diving into Woodcock research, breeding sure. season research. So, you know, there might not be as many official programs out there, but they're, there's it actually all started in, 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 mm, I might be wrong about this, Maine and Pennsylvania and Michigan, I think were the first kind of research oriented states that started using pointing dogs for mm. woodcock banding and research. Let me get someone from New York to yelling at me from that probably. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass along that feedback. <laughs> uh <laughs> I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if, if somebody were listening and interested in the Minnesota banding program, Jerry at pinersgrousecamp.com has a, has like a webpage dedicated to it that he usually keeps updated with the dates of next year's clinic and stuff. Does that sound right? Yep. Correct. They're, yeah. They're, through, through the, through the Piner's website, um, and his contact information, he's kind of our first line of, of contact. And then, you know, if you have any other specific questions, he can pass you along to one of us, others. But yeah, and, and one thing I'd like to mention is that we do have a lot of interest in Wisconsin and we're trying to cross the river mm. and uh, get over there and have a have a program in Wisconsin as well. So we're, we're testing those waters with the banding lab. Well, uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about today and you get involved in with work, which is quite interesting. Now, you and I were talking about doing this episode really since we we... I, we connected at Pine Ridge in the spring, and since then, um, there has been some noteworthy news on the Pittman-Robertson Act. But I'd like to talk, to the extent you can, a little bit about the Pittman-Robertson Act and how you're involved with that on a day-to-day basis. I guess I don't really think we've, we've dove deep into this on the podcast before, and um, I think a lot of listeners are probably quite familiar with it, but let's not make that assumption and could you tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. what it is and how it works? Yeah, for sure. I'll do, I'll do kind of my best to give a primer of it. So in, in response to large-scale declines in wildlife populations for market hunting and other things, think, you know, bison hunting in the Great Plains and the markets on the, on the railways going back into Chicago and in the east and a lot of hunting for feathers for fashion of migratory birds – you know, kind of in that, that 1800s into the early 1900s, we were seeing this huge decline in wildlife populations in the United States, primarily for those two reasons, right? You know, another example is like punt guns for duck hunting and shipping, you know, waterfowl back into markets and in, in the cities is unregulated, unregulated hunting of wildlife going on. A lot of people recognize that was an issue, right? You know, you can Teddy Roosevelt and a bunch of other folks um, recognize that, hey, we're losing our wildlife. We're losing that as a resource, whether it's commercial or otherwise. Uh, We're losing that heritage. So uh, in response to that, one of the major things they did, they did a lot of things. One of the major things they did is is 
push for and pass legislation called the Pittman Robertson Wildlife Restoration Act. And that was in 1937. So this is a very old law, as laws go, and has been fairly unchanged since its you know enactment in in 37. Hmm. But what it does is it taxes firearms and ammunition manufacturers or importers at an 11, 10 to 11% rate. So everything that they produce gets taxed uh, at the federal level at that 10%, 10 or 11% rate. And that's brought into the federal government through the treasury and then given to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we call this like the user pay, user benefit system because people that buy firearms and ammunition are are or were typically hunters. Right. And this was a way to create some sort of feedback loop where they could buy the goods they needed to go undo the activity. And then that purchase would then support the conservation of, of game animals. So it is, it is the foundation of, of wildlife management and conservation in the United States. And it's a, it's a model of conservation that's the best and recognizes the best in the world, right? It's, the more revenue that's generated through this, those sales, the more money that comes back into conservation. Um, and obviously, you know, gun sales are, are different today than they were mm-hmm. back then. But Pippin Robertson currently last year returned over $1.1 billion to conservation in the United States. Now, kind of the mechanism of how that works, like I said, it gets to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And then it's allocated to the states. So it goes to the state DNR, the state fish and wildlife agency, where they will submit grants to the fish and wildlife service to receive that allocation. So kind of talking about any, anything that a state fish and wildlife agency does can be funded. Not anything, but most of what a state fish and wildlife agency does uh, can be funded with Pittman Robertson. So land acquisition, your WMAs, um, not just the land themselves, but the habitat management on that land, the operations and maintenance of facilities or parking lots or roads on those properties. So hunters and outdoor recreationists can get to where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And then things like research, surveys, technical assistance to private landowners. So for instance, if you wanted to restore a prairie on, on your land, you know, you could call the DNR and their expert could come help you. And then another big thing is, is a part of it is hunter education. So if you've been through a hunter ed class, which I'm assuming a lot of your listeners have, a lot of that's funded through Pittman Robertson. Uh, hunter recruitment, retention, reactivation, which is now the, the R3 buzzword that's being floated around for the last several years. Yeah. And... One of the major changes in the law in the last few years is the amount that can be used for target ranges. So public target ranges on WMAs, off WMAs, wherever they might be, state-run shooting ranges. Um, we are doing a lot more of that work to uh, pay, kind of uh, payback or to uh, recognize that. A lot of the money through Pippin Robertson today aren't from prime aren't from solely hunters. It's yep. also your recreational shooters, yep. um, you know your your p- 
pistol, long gun, shotgun, you name it, um, are generating a lot of those funds. So it's it's a very complex, a very great amount of things that this funding can go towards, but primarily uh, the largest chunk of it goes back into conservation of public hunting areas. Yeah. What is the, just a few few questions on there. That was a great primer on it and got everybody up to speed. How are the allocations made towards the state? Is that based on like the number of hunting and hunting licenses they sell or something? Right. Um, so for Pippin Robertson, it's 50% of the land area of the state. It, it's a formula based. Okay. So 50% is based on your land area and 50% is based on your license sales okay. from the previous year. So, you know, you get states like some big states, right, that are automatically getting a lot of money, Texas, California, you know, but you're also getting other states that are smaller that are getting quite a bit of the money um, because they've got because their population base is so high. Right. So their their license buyers are so high. And before I forget, one of the most important things I think that Pippin Robertson did was that it, it mandated that if states wanted access to these federal funds that hunting licenses had to be reserved for conservation uses, uses of the Fish and Wildlife Agency. So the state can't take your hunting license fees and go spend it on, Mm. you know, roads or not that those things aren't important, right? But the hunters that buy a hunting license, that money is back into the pool for conservation. So that's kind of, that's kind of the basic formula, right? So it it depends on the year, depends on how much money is generated through the excise tax but that's the formula that they use uh, for the states. Yeah. And then how do, is it then at the state's discretion on like how to allocate that money and what projects it goes to, how do projects get submitted? And like, for example, like if somebody wanted to go open up a new shooting range or something or a skeet, skeet club, we'll, we'll make it upland specific. Like they put an application for that or how does that work? Yeah. So, so most of Mostly, if not all, of that decision-making occurs at the state fish and wildlife okay. agency level. So for us, that's the Minnesota DNR here. They will be notified about how much, approximately how much to expect the following year from, from Pip and Robertson, at which point they can start making their business decisions on, well, what do we want to fund? What, do, what are our like routine expenditures versus what are our new maybe new things we want to fund what new research might be out there what new land might be available to purchase Mm. uh, those types of things so they make those decisions including you know does the state want to build a new new shooting range or does the state want to provide money to a third party to build a shooting range right and like kind of sponsor it using federal grant dollars the mechanism is a grant, so the state will write a grant to the Fish and Wildlife Service. That is reviewed by people like me, and I review that to make sure that it's a wise use of funding, that it, it's up to date with the best science available, that it's eligible for these uses, and that we're not going to run into some sort of funding quagmire down the road when we're audited. So that's kind of <laughs> yeah. what I do, and as well as some other making sure it doesn't have impacts to endangered species, um, that type of work. And then they, the state will then get the money. It's a 75% cost share. So 75% of the project costs come from Pittman-Robertson and 25% come from the state. Now, that's another reason why those license fees are so important because primarily that cost share on the state side, that 25% is made up from license dollars. 
license fees. Um, so the states really have a, a great a, a great ability to choose what they need and want to do with those funds, which I think is appropriate because you know they're the they're the people doing the work yeah. and they understand their constituents, and they and we we provide as much flexibility to them as we can uh, to allow them to kind of do what they think need to be done. Yeah, it's really a really a unique system that obviously has has done a lot of good over the years and it was uh mm-hmm. we're lucky to have to have benefited that system being in place for such a long time. What kinds of projects do you see that let's just talk upland birds for a minute and like you mentioned land acquisition so that would be of interest to me as a as a bird hunter but what other types mm-hmm. of things do you see come through that that benefit birds and or bird hunters anything come to mind? Yeah. Uh well, I mean from from a broad lens, broad aspect, I think anything land-based, right, or water-based yeah. acquisitions and putting things in conservation, you know, whether that's restoring a, a you know, a farmland, a marginalized farmland to a prairie or a wetland, you know, you're getting pheasants and ducks or other grassland and water, water birds or in the woods, you know, obviously we spend a lot of our time there. Um, land acquisition, making sure that the habitat is on the landscape, you know, not just for game species, but for non-game species as well. I mentioned that tamarack where, yeah, we're managing for woodcock, but golden-winged warblers are, are a phenomenal species that have a great population at tamarack um, as well. So it benefits all things from an ecological basis. But, you know, surveys are another big one. So your drumming counts you mentioned, mm. you know, we're funding or a lot of, a lot of the Pittman Robertson funding is going towards staff time to do those, the staff time to crunch those data, publish publish those reports, those types of things. So you're getting those annual updates as a hunter uh, or as any user that, you know, okay, here's what the, the DNR has been doing. This is kind of giving me an idea of, of, despite what we said earlier, it might give people an idea of how things are going. Right, right. And then that kind of bleeds into research, right? So surveys kind of give you an idea of if a population's going up, down, staying static, is there a need to research those populations? So um, some of the recent stuff with West Nile virus and grouse mm-hmm. has been funded with Pippin Robertson. Anything related to like brood survival, nest success, you know, those types of things um, has been not always, but is commonly funded uh and I'm not talking just in Minnesota, across the states is funded right. with Kevin Robertson. Like so, we're doing some spruce grouse research here in Minnesota too. That that could potentially yep. be yeah, exactly. Funded. Yeah, Minnesota is one of those great states where they have other sources of funding that they can tap into, like Outdoor yeah. Heritage Fund and other state level things from time to time. Yeah. But Pippin, a lot of states don't have that, right? So Pippin Robertson is the the lifeblood of their conservation systems a lot of times. So there's a variety of things, you know, talk about going out to the prairies, not just habitat restoration and enhancement, but, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, probably up until the 90s, they released a lot of birds to try to, you know, increase populations in a lot of areas. So Bob White still get a lot of attention because their conservation status and now... You know, I don't, I don't know if you're a turkey hunter, but turkeys now obviously are starting to be talked about more and more about population declines. So mm-hmm. is that going to start becoming more common about what research needs to be done there? So 
you name it, if it's a wild bird or mammal, uh, Pippin-Robertson is usually involved in some state in some capacity. So it's a very important law, very important pot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we mentioned that that news, there was a, there was something brought up recently that was in effect wanting to, to repeal the act. And we're not going to dive into that here, just given the position that you're in, Kyle, but definitely wanted to touch on Pittman-Robertson, cover it a bit, and ensure that folks are at least up to speed on a little bit better on, on yeah. how it works, how it operates, how it affects things, at least in this state and, and yeah, potentially sure. other states. Yeah, and I will say, you know, one of the important factors, I've talked a lot about what I do in Fish and Wildlife Service and what the state does with the money, but again, those manufacturers and importers that are paying the taxes and their support for the taxes is really the important part of it, right? So if we didn't have their support and if they didn't care about conservation like they do, then, you know, this system wouldn't be what it is. And that goes all the way back to the 1930s till now, you know, right. we're, we're trying to, you know, let those manufacturers know how important their support is to us by showing them projects and letting them know what's going on. We were at Federal Ammunition about a month ago now, kind of giving a, they gave us a tour of their facilities. And in return, we're going to get make we're going to get the DNR to take us out on some cool site visit to see, you know, something cool the DNR is doing with the money. But, um, you know, they they they're one of, if not the biggest pair into Pittman-Robertson annually in the United States. Federal, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Federal. So they're very important part. should say federal ammunition, just to be clear. Yes. And then went down to Fiocchi, USA as well to, to kind of partner with them and, and, and let those manufacturers know how important they are. Yeah. I wish you would have told me before you're heading down to I would have had you grab me a couple flats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I would have if uh, they are cranking it out and they're, <laughs> you know, doing big business right now. So, um, yeah, they're working on some cool stuff too. Uh, did you learn anything interesting while you were on either ammunition tour? I've done the federal ammunition tour, but I have not yet been to Fiocchi. Yeah. I mean, I, I have my, so my experience with manufacturing at that kind of I have no experience manufacturing of that kind of scale, yeah, yeah. right? My grandpa was a tool and die maker and had his own shop in his barn in Ohio. And he had a few presses and tools to, to do some of that work. But but it was an amazing, the efficiency of those areas, the rigorous testing that they do, uh, you know, they t- definitely take a ton of pride in their product. And, and most of them are, are hunters and they care about the environment yeah. and they, you know, they understand, you know, what they do in their business and they want to make sure that, you know, they mitigate or give back as much as they can to ensure that, that, you know, they're clean air, clean water, wild places to visit. So it's, um, it, I learned a lot, but I, most of the time was like in all of everything that I'm not sure if I could like form a a mental sentence right now to explain it. It's just like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff going on right now. And I'm I just identifying shell types and, you know, what kind of load is this versus what kind of load is that? And, you know, kind of geeking out. So you can definitely plead the fifth on this question, but I'll ask it anyways. Are you going to be shooting federal or Fiocchi this fall? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'll put one in each barrel. All <laughs> right, all right, that's fair enough. <laughs> fair enough, man. Yeah. <laughs> Where is the Where's the Fiocchi USA? Uh, it's down in Ozark, Missouri, oh, okay. so it's just south of Springfield. So, um, yeah, they've been there for for a few decades, I think now, and and um, you know, obviously not quite the size of of federal ammunition, but uh, still a good sized plant. That they're producing all their shot shells, their rimfire, their center fire you know so yeah i'll have to chase them down at some point i'd love to talk with somebody there i'm a kind of a fiocchi ammunition fan among others but um yeah that's uh it's cool to go and see those places well kind of it it is august 1st today we mentioned that earlier we're going to move towards a close here but um i want to talk about the the promise of fall and looking ahead and heck you got a new pup with you this summer man Mm -hmm. tell me about that yeah yeah we're super excited so obviously, like talked about the eight-year-old Griff, he's he is what he is at this point. He's fun to hunt behind. Yep. He's not stylish. He's not like he's not the 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 the, the bird dog that you'd see on a painting. <laughs> so, but he's a good dog. And um, they have the three-year-old English Pointer, which is the exact opposite. She's a freaking she's so sexy in in the field and it sounds weird to say but you know what i mean it's just like oh that's <laughs> yeah amazing like if you can't read that dog and know what she's doing then right then you're probably you know can't see very well and then the new pup uh which we've talked about before uh her name's rye she is nine months now she's a english setter um uh, from jerry coulter at northwoods bird dogs and and she has a so much potential. I'm so excited that, you know, she's, we're running her on, on spring migrating woodcock this, you know, this April. And she was oh, yeah. holding point, letting me flush the bird. And it's just like, wow, this is, this is such a cool potential. So we're excited just to give her her first season of fun in the woods and shooting pointed birds only over her and that whole thing. So, yeah. Um, we're doing some bird work, some gun work, some variety of things with her, but uh, pretty cool. She's just like, okay, let's go have fun. Let's go do it. Yeah, that's going to be a fun fall for you this year, and good timing, obviously. You know, it's interesting to think about. I forgot we had we were talking about that that you had her in the woods this spring. You know, she was what four four or five months old at that point, and you've got some of those first points yeah. already. Yeah, I was super excited, and I'd be remiss if I don't mention my, my wife's dog. She had it when we met. It's a Beagle Lab mix. But that's been a new new fun challenge because this dog was gun-shy when we first started hunting together. It's now gotten to the point where it knows woe, but woe for that dog is to go flush the bird because all the other dogs are stopped. So we had to pull her out of the woods and hunt her by herself, but we did shoot her first grouse and woodcock over her last fall. No kidding. So the Beagle's fun. The Beagle Lab is fun. <laughs> that's awesome so, yeah. <laughs> is there anything that you're thinking with the new pop that you know you've been through it a few times like all right we're definitely going to do this differently or i need to make sure i do this anything like that you no know, it's it's like one of those things i discussed getting that getting the griff and understanding that hey i'm going to mess up and i need to yep. give myself some grace and give the dog some grace and figure out kind of what this is all about together and i think as i've train more dogs and and help train more dogs it's like a totally it's moved away from any sort of negative reinforcement all into this positive reinforcement world where especially with the pup you know if she finds birds it's a celebration if she finds birds and points it and gets you know and i shoot at it and miss it it's a celebration everything's fun everything's good 
Um, and just kind of, you know, making sure that I'm not putting that internal pressure on myself for the dog's performance. So, you know, it's not reading my attitude as being negative or, or harsh. I think that is, I think that is great advice. If not, uh, maybe even more important than the technical stuff at times, you know, there's, there's a lot you can do to get in the dog's way to hamper their development. And I think it's never hurts to be reminded to do your best to stay out of the dog's way as best you can. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the birdshot podcast. Keep up all the great work that you're doing for us fish and wildlife, Minnesota woodcock banding. I certainly appreciate it. And we'll look forward to seeing you at Pine Ridge again in the near future. Good luck with the new bird dog and you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.